The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory, Glory to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, you Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's such a joy to be with you. Let me pray for our time together in God's word. Father, we pray now you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace the wonders of your word this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the word who became flesh and who dwelt among us and whose glory we now long to see. Amen. Well, friends, the wait is over. All the candles are lit. It's Christmas day. Christ has come. And the banner that is flying over Bethlehem for all to see is God with us and for us as one of us. So kids and adults, what did you want for Christmas this year? What'd you want for Christmas this year? Of course, there's the, the surface answer, like the stuff we asked for, but there's also the substantive one that's up underneath it. And that's the one we are after this morning. What everybody knows to be true is that we all want joy that will last forever, don't we? But there is a problem because things like disease and family dysfunction and unfulfilled desires and death keep getting in our way. And the things under our tree can give joy for a season, but they can't sustain it for very long. The passage we're looking at this morning is a classic Christmas text. Even if you're not really connected to a church, this will sound very familiar to you. And we can all thank a Charlie Brown Christmas for that. Um, if you've seen it, do you remember the part where Charlie yells out, isn't there anyone out there who can tell me what Christmas is all about? Then comes little old Linus. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he walks over to center stage and he says, lights, please. There he is standing in the spotlight. And then he begins to quote from our passage here in Luke. And when he's done, he says to Charlie, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. 
And he picks up his blanket, shuffles off stage. It's perfect. Well, I agree with Linus because he agrees with Luke. We all love a good story, don't we? The prince slaying the dragon to rescue the princess. The wardrobe that opens into Narnia. For me, this time of year, I gotta say, it's a wonderful life. That final scene slays me. Anyway, but as we think about the story that Luke is telling here, it's important to keep in mind that the Bible is not telling us 66 different stories, but it's telling one overarching story that can be summed up in a sentence. It's the surprising story of what God has done, is doing and will do in the person and work of his son, Jesus. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to think of this in terms of a story because that's what it is. And what does every story need? Well, it needs a setting. It needs a, a place for it to play out. Uh, it needs people who can play a role. It needs a script, preferably a compelling one with some twists and turns in it. And it needs to have a point that causes those who witness it to respond in a certain way. And Luke has all of that here, but again, this isn't pretend. This is the true story of the day heaven came down to earth. And because most of us have heard it so many times, maybe it's lost some of its magic, right? So I'm praying that we would once again, or maybe even for the first time on this Christmas morning, experience the wonder of what's being told and worship. So maybe do this. Picture yourself in New York this morning. You're there for the greatest show ever to hit Broadway, and you've been given the best seats in the house, and the show is about to begin. Now, there are three scenes in these verses, and the first one, verses one through seven, helps set the stage. And from our perspective, it may seem like nothing all that significant is happening, because all we can see is what's playing out in front of us. And it's not until we go behind the scenes and pull back the curtain now we get a window into what's really going on here. So scene one, setting the stage, the promise and the place, verses one through seven. Here's what we can see. The Roman emperor at the time, Caesar Augustus, calls for a census. And because the people of Israel are under Roman rule, they are required to do what Caesar decrees. So we have Joseph and Mary who live in the northern part of Israel in Galilee in this backwater two-bit town called Nazareth. And we learn that Joseph is a descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. That's important. And so Joseph and Mary travel south to Judea, to David's hometown, which is another small, insignificant village, six miles outside of Jerusalem to take part in the census. And we learn from chapter one that Mary is pregnant, miraculously, because as we all know to be true, virgins don't have babies. And we learn that the baby conceived in her by the Holy Spirit will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So by this point in the story, Mary, several months pregnant, she travels to Bethlehem, the city of David. And it's while they are there, verse seven, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. All right, so that's, that's everything that we can see from our seats. That's what's playing out on the stage of human history, but there's more going on behind the scenes. There's more to this story. And to get that perspective, we've got to take a quick walk down memory lane to see how we got here in the first place. To the very beginning of the story where God speaks the universe into existence and calls everything good. And there's Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with God and with each other. And then sin enters the world and fractures absolutely everything. God's good creation is cursed. But right there in Genesis 3, as God pronounces judgment, he also makes a promise. 
And speaking to the serpent, he says, the one who tempted them, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to this. He, the woman's son, shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this son who will one day be born of the woman will deal a death blow to the devil and he will reverse the curse of sin and death. Like that's right at the start of the story, three chapters in. Now flip over to Genesis 12 and 15. God calls Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. He says, even though you don't have any children and your wife can't conceive, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, Abraham. I'm gonna give you offspring. I'm gonna give them land. And through your son that I'm going to miraculously give to you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in other words, out of the curse, which has affected all of us, will come blessing for all. And fast forward to 1 Samuel 16, you come to David. God's people, the children of promise, are in the land of promise. And God calls the prophet Samuel to go and to anoint the next king. Any idea where he tells him to go? You guessed it, to Bethlehem, to Jesse's sons. And one by one, sons of Jesse come before Samuel and he thinks to himself, like, surely this guy is God's anointed because he looks the part. But seven sons come, seven sons go, and God doesn't choose any of them. And then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? Come to find out they are not. Samuel has one more son, but he's the smallest. He's the youngest and he's out keeping the sheep. So David is not even a contender. Why? Because he doesn't look like a king. But he comes and the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Later in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and he says to him, I'm gonna raise up your offspring after you, David, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then hundreds of years pass. Kings come and kings go. God's people are sent into exile for their sin and there is no king sitting on the throne of David and there tucked away in a minor prophet is another promise from God. Kim read it for us this morning. Micah 5.2 says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days, who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then 400 years of silence. No prophets on the scene saying, this is what the Lord says. And you gotta wonder, has God forgotten his promises? Has God forsaken his people? And then we read in Luke 2, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the camera swings to two Middle Eastern peasants one of whom is pregnant and they are on their way to Bethlehem, the city of David, where every promise of the Old Testament and all of history is heading. And all of a sudden, the silence is broken, but not by a prophet, but by a young Jewish girl, a daughter of Eve, who is screaming in pain from childbirth, which she inherited from the curse, and then finally, in her joy by her firstborn son, whose cry is that of the very voice of God. And there in the dark, in obscurity, 
is heaven's highest praise in human form. Like, can you even imagine it? The maker of mankind now lies in a manger. The one who spoke everything into existence now cries as a baby who needs milk to survive. He who holds all things together now held in his mother's arms, the very image of God, friends, bearing the image of man. Can you feel the wonder of it? This is Eve's offspring born to crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse. This, the promised son of Abraham, whose birth will bring blessing to all people everywhere. David's greater son, born in Bethlehem, has finally come to establish peace on earth by conquering his and our enemies. But here's the thing, that in that moment, as that baby lies in a feeding trough for animals, in a stable somewhere, the son of poor parents, in a small, insignificant town, he certainly didn't look the part. But don't miss the point. This was the plan, the purpose, and the promise of God before the world began so that all the praise would be his. So do you see what's happening here behind the scenes? None of this is an accident, and nor are the circumstances of your life or my life. It may be surprising to us, friends, but it is not surprising to God. He has put all the pieces into place. Don't miss it. Caesar, the king, issued a decree on that day because long before time began, God had issued a decree that his son, the king of kings, would be born in Bethlehem on this day. And in exactly this way, not in an inn, not in Rome or in Jerusalem and without anyone even noticing. Not Rome's politically powerful or Israel's religious elite. And it was all on purpose. God had come from heaven to save the world and no one on earth is there to bear witness to the wonder. At least not yet. Because the lights are about to come on. The choir is taking its place. Some shepherds move to center stage and the curtain is pulled back. And we come to the second scene in this story, the shepherds, the surprise and the savior, verses eight through 14. We read there in verse eight that in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now, I don't wanna make a bigger deal of this than the Bible does, but is it not just a little surprising that the first witnesses to this wonder are some unnamed shepherds? Because as many of you know, at least in the world's eyes, these guys aren't that significant. They certainly don't look important. Their days were spent rubbing shoulders with sheep and sheep stink and they are dirty, which meant that most of them lived in what you and I would consider poverty. So these aren't the people at the top. These are the poor, in the eyes of the world, the insignificant and the overlooked, but not to God and not on the most significant day in history. Think about this. How many poor people in the world, even today, either simply because of where they were born or because of lack of intelligence or injustice, whatever the case might be, how many of them get the kind of news that will change their life forever? Very few, right? Until now. Because if the good news of great joy isn't also for them, then surely it is not for us either. Because the thing that we have to get is that whether we are poor or we are powerful or somewhere in the middle, our position in life is not the point. 
The point is we are all standing in the same quicksand when it comes to the curse brought on by our sin. And all of us need the same savior to come and rescue us. And I think God is writing the story this way with these shepherds so that none of us could get our grimy little sinful hands on his glory. Like surely God here on some level is saying something about himself as the great shepherd who has come to save stupid, dirty sheep like us who have all strayed. This is what our God is like. So picture the scene with me. It's dark. It's like any other night, nothing unusual about it. You can hear the bleeding of sheep off in the distance. Some shepherds like David, generations before them on the same hills outside of Bethlehem are watching over their flock. And in a burst out of nowhere, a blinding light pierces the darkness and an angel from heaven appears and they find themselves standing in the very presence of God. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of angels, but here's what I know based on biblical accounts. An angel does not look like the beloved Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, as charming as he is, nor does it look like the little winged Christmas ornament that my mom bought the day I was born that now hangs on our tree. Rather, they are so terrifyingly glorious that all of us would be tempted to fall down and worship them. So here these guys are beholding the glory of God and they are scared out of their minds. It says they're filled with great fear. And then the angel speaks. Now, let me ask, if you were standing face to face with God and one day you will be, or an angel from God, what would you want him to say to you? Put yourselves in the shepherd's shoes. What would you want him to say to you? A sinner who doesn't deserve mercy, a rebel who has rejected him, who loves what he gives, but has little to no love for him in his heart because it's gonna go one of two ways. Either judgment is coming and you're gonna be held to account for your sin or it's gonna be a time of jubilation. And what the angel says to the shepherds and to us are the sweetest, most surprising words in the history of the world. It's gospel. So back to the beginning, this friends is what you and I really want for Christmas. They are the words that we long to hear and had always hoped to hear, but never really believed we actually would hear. So what are they? Verses 10 through 12. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. <laughs> God, the creator and king over all has himself come to deal with the curse. And the good news on this day, the day of his first advent, is that he has not come in judgment to condemn guilty, law-breaking sinners like us. Make no mistake, that day will come when Jesus and all his glory and all the hosts of heaven with him will come again to judge the quick and the dead. But that day is not this day. Because today, this day is the day of salvation, not judgment, but of great joy because he, friends, has come to make a way for those who've committed treason against the king to receive pardon. He's come to make a way for wayward sheep to be brought home on the shoulders of the shepherd. He's come to make a way for God to be with us and for us to be with God forever. And he is lying there in a manger in Bethlehem as God himself stepped into our skin as a baby with a real body that could be wrapped in swaddling cloths. And the thing is, like David, he doesn't look the part. No, no. He seems way too small. 
way too insignificant, too poor to be the savior and king of all people. And then one day when that little peasant boy born in Bethlehem in obscurity, lying in a manger and seen by shepherds, when he becomes a man, his body will be nailed to a Roman cross and lifted in the sky for the whole world to see. And on that particular day, he will definitely not look the part because they will lay his lifeless body in a borrowed grave. But there in the darkness, behind the curtain, away from view, he would be cursed for our sin by walking straight into death that he might remove its sting. And he took the spikes, as it were, that held him to the sinner's cross, and he shoved them through that ancient serpent's skull because three days later, he got up out of that grave and secured our victory over it. Mary's firstborn son is also the firstborn from the dead, which means at this very moment, there is a man in heaven who bears our image because he bears our body. And because he does, he will one day come again to bring us home with him and we will live happily ever after. That is what Christmas is all about. So maybe now you can see why in verses 13 and 14, the curtains swing wide open and the thin veil that separates heaven and earth is lifted and all of heaven like a choir that can hardly wait to belt out that first glorious note, burst onto the scene, bearing witness to the wonder of what God has done. Saying to poor lowly shepherds, Glory to God in the highest because he, friends, gets all the glory and you and I get the great joy. Which leads briefly to the third and the final scene. Let's call this the standing ovation. Verses 15 through 20, which we've left out of the bulletin, but I want us to hear it. And this is important because this is where you and I enter the story. This is the part that we are called to play. We are not passive spectators here. We're participants. Remember what we said earlier that stories call for some sort of response from those who witness it. So what will be ours? Let's ask this, what do the shepherds do after the lights go dark and the angel's gone and they're left out in the field with the sound of sheep off in the distance? What do they do when the curtain closes and the heavenly choir stops singing or at least it seems that way and there's silence again? Because what they do in this story is instructive for you and me and ours. And the answer is they give witness to the wonder of what God has done and they worship. So will that be true for us at All Saints this Christmas morning? It says in verse 16 that they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw the sign the angel had given them, they made known, they gave witness to the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered and Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then verse 20, it says the shepherds returned. Stop there for a second. Returned where exactly? Well, don't miss it. They returned to the field, to the sheep. They returned to their work, to their position in life, to their family, to a world that is filled with all sorts of injustice and sadness, suffering and death. Does that sound at all familiar to our story? You see, their circumstances hadn't changed when they saw that child, and yet everything in them had changed. Because it says they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In other words, when the story concludes and the curtain closes, it's as if they leap from their seats with joy to give a standing ovation for the Savior and the King who had come. 
do you ever have this experience when you go to the theater to see a movie or a show that when it's over and you walk out and you're back in the real world that you feel this ache in your heart because you want what you just saw to actually be true? What Luke's been doing all along as we've sat here listening to this old, old story unfold is to try to get us to believe that it is so that we too, as it were, would leap from our seats with joy at the news of Jesus and worship and be sustained by that joy, even in our suffering. Here's the thing, and I'm almost done. I'm not interested in preaching platitudes, nor are any of the other pastors here, and I hope that you guys aren't interested in hearing them. We are not about to put our heads in the sand and pretend like there's not real sadness in the world or that we're not actually experiencing it ourselves, because that would be crazy because we would be denying the very reason Christ had to come and we would have no ache in our hearts for him to come back and to finish what he began. And for some of us here, it may not look like he has come or that he's coming back. But if we're struggling to believe this morning, it's because we're not following the story very closely. Because the point of Christmas and the point of the cross is that God has kept all of his promises and always will. Every word of the script that he has written will play out just as he has planned. And it will be perfect, though it may not look like it now in your life. And he's not left us without a witness. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us one another. You and I never have to wonder whether or not God knows what it's like to be in our skin or in our suffering. The table that is set before us now bears witness to it. When in a surprising twist, he stepped in front of the curtain and took center stage to play the part that you and I couldn't. And he is at work in heaven right now behind the scenes so that there will be no loose ends to his story, not in your life or in mine or in all of history until the day he bursts onto the scene again in glory with all of heaven with him and is seen for who he is. And all those who have believed the good news of the God who became man like the shepherds outside of Bethlehem will be filled with the greatest joy and they will leap from their seats to worship him for the wonders of his love for all of eternity. So may that future joy, brothers and sisters in Jesus, sustain our present joy as we await the return of the King on the day when heaven will come down to earth to stay and we will sing with all the host of heaven, glory to God in the highest. Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be our savior. You fill our hearts with the wonder and joy of Christmas and the baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, God with us, for us, as one of us, that we would worship. Make us witnesses of this good news of great joy in Austin and around the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.